Welcome to the P4C Podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 14 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each week, the P4C Podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our current series is from P4C 2015, Holiness. We now join our speaker for the conclusion of last week's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. But secondly, I want us to see our holy and ministering God. Do you ever think of God as a ministering God? John Piper says, when we look at what God does for His people and for sinners, it begs the question of who ministers for whom. Who's really ministering to whom and for whom? We have contemplated here the transcendence of God. God is different from, He's separate from His creation. But in His difference, He is not distant. The God who is high above us is not removed from us. But the psalmist wants his readers to see more than Jehovah's superiority. He wants to declare His approachableness, His, what we would call, condescension. The unreachable God has stooped down to mankind to minister to fallen sinners who cannot approach Him. What does this ministry look like? The writer reaches back into biblical Jewish history to show us something of what it looks like, to illustrate for us what it looks like. First, it is a priestly ministry. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. The Old Testament priest stood as a mediator between God and humans. He was appointed by God to bring God's demands to man and man's needs to God. He was set apart by Jehovah for this holy purpose and thus called to be separated, sanctified, consecrated, holy, dedicated. Any offerings to Jehovah came through the priest who alone was authorized offer them. Moses and Aaron are called to remembrance as the kind of the original priest, the prototype priest who stood between God and the people pleading for them and bringing God's response back to them. Job pled for an intercessor, if you might remember, leading us to believe that he predated Moses in the Mosaic law. Although there was Melchizedek who served as a, an early priest. But Moses and Aaron, Eliezer and, and others, other priests, were but mere foreshadows of God's ultimate priestly ministry mediated through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Man fell into sin in the perfect environment. In the Garden of Eden. And was in immediate need of someone to bring reconciliation to this now estranged relationship with God. And God pursued man in the garden. God pursued man at the flood. God pursued Abram in Ur of Chaldees and the nation of Israel in Egypt. And then God unfolded His ultimate plan for priestly ministry to sinners in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, death, burial, and resurrection... A holy God provides for unholy sinners what they cannot provide for themselves. 
access to Him. God provides what He demands. That's what Augustine said years ago. And a fellow by the name of Pelagius took issue with him. But um, Augustine said, God, demand what you will and grant what you demand. And that's what God has done. He has demanded that someone bring us near to Him, that we come near to Him. We cannot. He's provided the one who can do that for us. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. And so our holy God's prophetic, I mean priestly ministry. And then our holy God's prophetic ministry. Samuel was among those who called upon His name. Now Samuel's an interesting fellow, and it's interesting that the psalmist chose him. Sinful man not only needed a go-between to approach God, he also needed truth, the truth of God revealed to him. So, long ago, as Hebrews says, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There were those before Samuel to whom God revealed His will, His truth. But Samuel was the first pure prophet. He's kind of a... Uh, a, um, an attachment between the priest and the prophet. He was a revealer of God's truth, what they called a seer. He stands as the representative Old Testament prophet here. He and those prophets who followed were God's means of progressive revelation. When we say progressive revelation, we mean that God didn't reveal everything all at once, but He revealed it different ways, different times. Aggressive revelation of His truth, unfolding redemption and the will of God for His people. So when the psalmist mentions Samuel, he's reminding both his present and future readers of God's ministry or of revealing His truth to sinners. Now you think about that. You have sinners dead in their trespasses and sin, blind to spiritual truth, and God ministers to sinners through prophets, and finally through His revealed Word. Our Old Testament predecessors did not enjoy the blessing of, that we have, this. A complete canon of Scripture and a sin-conquering Savior. Our God who appointed Samuel and the other prophets to reveal His truth no longer speaks in the way He did in the Old Testament, but has given us His complete revelation in the Scriptures and His complete redemption in His Son. He has spoken in these last days by His Son. And so, our holy God's prophetic ministry. What's the other aspect of ministry we see here? Our holy God's prayerful ministry. They called upon the Lord and He answered them. One of the amazing aspects of God's dealings with His people is the place prayer holds. If you've thought much about it, you've probably asked or thought, why does a holy, self-sufficient, sovereign God call us to pray? The answer lies in part, at least, in God's pleasure in ministering to and through his people. God's people 
have always called upon His name. They who are abysmally insufficient call upon Him who is self-sufficient and all-sufficient. The Old Testament people of God prayed with much less light, but with no less fervency. We pray with full light. The full light of Scripture. When I say full light, I mean we've got all of God's revealed will. We seek His face and petition His name with the confidence He hears and responds with all of His wisdom and grace. Let us therefore draw near to the throne. He reigns. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace with full assurance in order that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is our holy and ministering God. Our holy and majestic God. But finally, I want us to see our holy and merciful God. Verses 8 and 9. And we've, we've certainly had glimpses of God's mercy already from the psalmist up till now, but in these last verses, the, he concentrates on it more fully. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. You answered them, O Lord. You were to them, the ESV says, God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their evil deeds. In verse 1, we're introduced to the mercy of God by the mention of the mercy seat. The Lord sits enthroned above or upon or between the cherubim. The place where the Shekinah hovered was the mercy seat, the top of the ark. In plain language, the ark was a box and it was covered with gold and then had these angelic figures over it that hovered over it. And the top of that box was the mercy seat. It was what John referred to in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, when he says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is a form of the word for mercy seat that was used in the the Septuagint, John's Bible would have been a Greek Old Testament, not a Hebrew one. The, the translation of the Hebrew into the Greek was called the Septuagint. And that's the Bible John would have used. And when he uses the word propitiation, he uses a word similar to, same word family, as mercy seat. I hope you see the connection between what the psalmist says and what John said in his letter in First John. It is a connection often seen between the Old and New Testament. When the psalmist reminds God's people of God's presence over the mercy seat, he's calling them to remember God's covenant love and faithfulness and His forgiveness and His forgiving mercies to them. God did not just dwell among the people. He dwelt above the propitiating mercy seat, ministering His saving mercies to his covenant people. 
our holy God, our holy and merciful God. I would like for us to think about this last point from two aspects. First, He, that is God, is an abundantly merciful God. Our God is not stingy. Is not a stingily forgiving God. He is not restrained in His mercies. Thy mercy is great above the heaven. The psalmist said, the earth is full of your mercies. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant, plenteous, the King James says, abundant in mercy unto all who call upon you. So when the psalmist points God's people to the forgiveness of God, which he does here, he calls to mind the lavishness of God's grace and mercy and the abundance of his forgiveness. He's an abundantly forgiving or merciful God. But He is also an actively merciful God. Now our passage makes it clear that it is, that it is God who is the active agent in the forgiveness equation. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were a God that forgives them. Or as the ESV says, you were to them God who forgives though you took vengeance on their inventions. God literally lifts or carries away or bears away our sins. This is what the writer is saying. And the New Testament writers take up the theme, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who His own self bear our sin in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The New Testament writers tell us, not just of God's benign overlooking of sin, but that He removes our sin from our account, from His sight. But the psalmist portrays God not as a grandfatherly old man who ignores sin. Because, as one man has said, the God who cannot look upon sin cannot overlook sin. But he was an avenger of their wrongdoings, as the passage tells us. In an environment of mercy, this is important for us. It tells us something about the condition of our souls. In an environment of mercy, the unconverted soul will tend to presume upon God's goodness and assume that license is acceptable rather than obedience to God. You see what I'm saying? There's a, the person who does not have a converted heart and a transformed mind that is trusting the mercy of God but is in an environment of mercy will tend to presume upon that mercy. We saw the verse earlier. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Forgiveness and mercy are not cause to presumption but cause to humble Obedience and submission. And so, Nadab and Abihu, we mentioned them earlier, the sons of Korah in number 16, the heinous sexual and idolatrous rebellion at Mount Sinai, and God's many judgments in the book of Judges, 
all demonstrate that our God is not to be trifled with and that He is, it is, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that our God is a consuming fire. Now, big picture, big God. He reigns our holy and majestic God, our holy and ministering God, God, our holy and merciful God. And some of you may be wondering what any of this has to do with worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. Or perhaps, perhaps you've begun to make the connection. First, The beauty of holy worship is not primarily about the holiness of the worshiper, <coughs> but the worshipee. The beauty of holy worship, worshiping the Lord and the beauty of holiness is not primarily about our holiness. Not that that's not important, but it's primarily about the holiness of God. The psalmist closes with what has been building into a crescendo of worship and declaration of God's holiness when he says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. He says it three times in one form or another. Exalt His awesome name, he says earlier, for it is holy. But it is this transcendent otherness of the high and holy God that should motivate us to come to Him corporately as we have and as you should do in your own local church and privately in our own quiet times of worship and devotion with a holy heart attitude and in a holy manner. This is no common matter. This is not business as usual. This is no picnic or carnival ride. This is activity of the highest order. This is holy activity. As one of my professors said many years ago, we worship the Lord not in the holiness of beauty, but in the beauty of holiness. So I'll leave you with what I pray are three helpful applications. One, we worship in fear. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells above the cherubim, let the earth be shaken. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise His great and awesome, King James says, terrible or awful, Name, it is holy. If you, Lord, should take iniquity into account, O Lord, who could stand? We worship in fear. But secondly, we worship in faith. These two are not contradictory. They are not incongruous. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord. And he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them.
We worship in faith. We come to worship this God who ministers grace and truth to us. He has drawn us to Himself and provided the access we cannot obtain any other way. We come with hearts desiring to obey and to be transformed by the presence of our holy God. So we worship in fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. No, there's really, we often think of that as two different thoughts. It's synonymous parallelism. In poetry, if you study poetry at all, you know that poets often will use parallelism to make a point. There's, there's antithetical parallelism where the, the poet will say something, then he'll say something opposite of it to create tension and make a point. But there's synonymous parallelism in which the poet will make a statement and then say the same thing in a, or something very similar to it or expand upon it with a statement right after it. And so they run parallel to one another so that you get the point. And when the writer of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, he's not talking about two different things. Fear of the Lord is the starting place. Fear of this holy and majestic God, this transcendent other God who is so high above us that He cannot be reached, untouchable, unreachable, and yet present. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Several years ago, one of my sons and I were talking about a conversation they had with a friend, and they were discussing a theological subject. And they were at odds. When I said us, they were, they were disagreeing and they were discussing in a fine Christian manner this particular issue. And, uh, and then we, so he was telling me about this and I said, you know, really, you can't convince someone of something just by showing them that it's true. The real issue is not that. The real issue is God. God is the issue. What kind of God do you know? How powerful is your God? Or as the book of years ago said, how big is your God? And so, we worship God in fear, with fear, proper fear, proper reverence, proper awe. We worship God with faith. We worship God in forgiveness. We approach God as forgiven and forgiving people. We remember that our God has said, but on this will I look. On him or her who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. We come wondering. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter Father's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. 
This is at least in part what it means to worship in the beauty of holiness. A fear of God, a faith in His Son, forgiven, therefore forgiving. Behold our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so much of you to preach and declare that we cannot communicate it sufficiently. And so, we trust your Spirit to minister to our souls the truth of your Word, the triumphs of your grace, and the glories that are in Christ Jesus, that you have shown us of yourself in Him. Help us to learn more of what it means to worship in the beauty of holiness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org. Or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we dive into a new session from Passion for Christ. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for His glory each and every day.